We continue this season of resurrection following the stories of the Acts of the Apostles, the people who followed up sort of what happened after Jesus goes away. And Paul's been traveling around the world declaring the good news that God is on the move, that the kingdom of God is at hand. We come to this story today about an amazing woman. A vision of a man from Macedonia came to Paul during the night. He stood urging Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. Immediately after he saw the vision, we prepared to leave for the province of Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. We sailed from Troas straight for Samothrace and came to Neapolis the following day. From there we went to Philippi, a city of Macedonia's first district and a Roman colony. We stayed in that city several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the riverbank, where we thought there might be a place for prayer. We sat down and began to talk with the women who had gathered. One of those women was Lydia, a Gentile God-worshipper from the city of Thyatira, a dealer in purple cloth. As she listened, the Lord enabled her to embrace Paul's message. Once her and her household were baptized, she urged, Now that you have decided that I'm a believer in the Lord, come and stay in my house. And she persuaded us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And Lord, may this word dwell in our hearts richly. May my words proclaim your praise. And may all of these things be done for your glory this day and forever. Amen. What does hospitality look like in the 21st century? The era of Airbnb, millennial chic hotels, experience companies, and professional therapists. What does it mean to be hospitable? Thinking about this question took me back to college. I was sitting in my dorm room. And instead of doing what I was supposed to do, attempting to summarize for a paper Kant's metaphysics for my history of philosophy class, I did something far more interesting. This south suburb Chicago kid, a missionary kid from Germany, a north suburbs kid, and a son of a Mississippi lawyer and judge got into yet another theological debate. We started talking about the decreasing level of giving in churches, how much there was for, to do for the kingdom, and how we would be different than the current tightwad generations who ran things. We were bemoaning how it seemed like professionals, like lawyers and doctors, were coming to church less. When one of my friends said something simple that has provided a stumbling block for me for the past 10 years, we were talking about the money in the church, and he said, you know, I see it as my job as a doctor to make the money for the church to do its work. Because doctors' hours are grueling, so I wouldn't have time to volunteer, but somebody has to pay the bills. Now, at first, his declaration seemed logical. Somebody's got to pay the bills. Giving his money seemed like an equally important gift of himself to God, and I believe his intentions were fully honorable. But something about that didn't sit right with me. And it still doesn't. We all know that money is power. 
It's important because it is power, and we pray to God that what we are doing with our resources, with our money, is in alignment with God's kingdom goals, that we can use that power to shape the world more and more into the image of the kingdom, whether it's seeking out a different protein to sort of lift up the vegan and vegetarian industry, be using your power to buy a, a sustainable product, using, looking for those certified sustainable practices product labels, and using your economic power. It doesn't have to be all of it, but just small choices that add up to movements. We can use our money as power to influence the world, but it's not the only power we have. And if we only practice it like that, we lose something. Money and power has to be used in tandem with that most precious resource of all, time. Enter Lydia from the Acts of the Apostles. We know so little about her, but if you get in the Bible a woman and they give you her name and any details about her, she had to have been incredible to get past the filter of the patriarchy and the decades of oral history and tradition, that she got through all that and we still know her name and what she did for a living, is pretty incredible. Scripture says she sold purple cloth, which as you heard was the most expensive dye that created the most expensive clothes, so she had money and probably a house with a few servants. But most importantly, she was also a Sebumin Tontheon, a God worshiper. And while most folks were not monotheistic, she was enough of a believer in Yahweh that the women were down there gathering the river for prayer, probably because she was the gatherer. And as they went down in the river to pray, Paul met them. The Bible says that as she listened, the Lord enabled her to embrace Paul's message. Acts uses this language all over the place, that the Spirit enables, allows, opens up things to be heard. Scripture says once she and her household were, her, once she and her household, so she and all the servants there were baptized, she urged, now that you have decided that I am a believer in the Lord, come and stay in my house. And Paul says, she persuaded us. Now, this is someone who could sort of be thought of in the lens of a small business version of Downton Abbey. You've got an estate, you've got people you're telling where to go, and you've got influence if you're selling in this culture, in this place, purple cloth. So this invitation for Paul and the disciples to stay in that house is not just about finding a place to sleep. When we think about the modern hospitality industry, it's is there a happy hour? Is there free breakfast? Is there a bed without bed bugs? This hospitality was not just a place to be, but also a call for Paul to come and disciple her and everyone else, else in her house. And it wouldn't just be one night. This would be an invitation to stay for a long time and to minister to her and her household that they could grow more and more into the likeness of this resurrected Jesus. So Lydia's hospitality is wonderful, it's remarkable. She, in the midst of her busy schedule as a business owner, provides time to provide shelter for Paul, a forum for religious education. She even gathers people for worship down at the river. She has a lot of influence because of her one-on-one -on -one hospitality. 
But what if Lydia tried to turn her home into a place of respite for all, for all the lost, all the lonely, all the poor, all the maimed, all the lame? How much could she handle? Now, the early church didn't really understand the answer to these questions on the large scale that we think of, but they stuck to their sense that providing hospitality was a bedrock of the Christian faith. In her book, Making Room, Recovering Hospitality as a Christian Tradition, Christine Pohl shows how the church early and often recognized its duty to serve the least of these. You may remember those words from Jesus in Matthew 25. This included everyone from abandoned children, because at the time the Roman Empire, if you had a daughter, you know that 20% of your household income was going to have to go with that daughter when she was married off. So often daughters would be abandoned in back alleys. The church would pick them up and help them. The church would help the disabled, the mentally ill, all who found home in the abodes of early Christians and those in the local synagogues who had any space or enough wealth to have a servant. If you had space, you practiced hospitality. It wasn't a choice of the Christian tradition. It's just what you do. Now, the good news is that this church, in large part because of that Matthew 25 calling, whenever they provided shelter for such a person, they believed they sheltered Jesus himself. And because of that, the church rapidly expanded. Just about every sociologist agrees that that aspect of the Christian faith is what set it apart from the early Roman Empire and helped it to expand, even under the face of brutal political persecution by the Roman Empire. Because hospitality was based in everybody's homes. Anybody could practice it. It might take on some different forms depending on the space you have. You may not be able to house people for a long time, but most of us could share a meal or two. Everybody looked on in awe of Christianity's focus to use every bit of their resource to help the plight of the forsaken. But over time, the system became institutionalized, and for good measure. There were some folks who had medical issues that people in their own home just couldn't take care of. Families dealing with folks who were mentally ill, who needed some more professionalized care, needed a greater sense of community. <coughs> and so as soon as Emperor Constantine Christianizes the Roman Empire in the 400s, the church has a huge amount of wealth. And so it creates orphanages. It creates the first hospitals. All their institutions that were specifically oriented to help those who needed help. And there's no doubt that the quality of care for those folks on the whole increased. But there's side effects. There's side effects that we feel today. So these nonprofits that these churches originally created and spun off became more and more detached from the church. The people who once hosted the least of these in these homes mostly shifted the responsibility of hospitality to those programs and those places other than their own abodes. That sound like a familiar situation? Pohl in this book shows extensively how these past couple of centuries of well-intentioned social welfare, think of the Dickensian Scrooge saying, no, I don't want to give more money to the poorhouse, all the way up to the modern time and the huge surge of nonprofits that came out of the 80s and 90s and modern hospitals, all of these have certainly increased the quality of care for those who need it. But largely, 
had left the general public and especially the church detached from acts of hospitality. Churches were the ones in general most responsible for the creation of these nonprofits. And now so many folks count their participation in these ministries a little bit through their counting of volunteer hours, but increasingly so by how much money they send in. I don't have time to give my time, so I'll give my money. Two problems happen, though, when we institutionalize our hospitality. The first is mission drift. The church begins helping someone because they want to help them, they want to be in solidarity with them, to walk alongside them, provide a place for people of the church to interact with the poor and those who need help. But with the spin-off to a 501c3, the helping part may get better, but the interaction almost always decreases and gets professionalized. The people getting paid are very passionate about this and volunteers sometimes, but a few years into things, you start to see the ramifications as the second problem shows its head. No longer are people in the church shaped by the act of hospitality it's not happening face-to-face anymore. Future generations lose touch with these constituencies. And then you have other churches who will try to help those folks that they tried to help a long time ago. And all of a sudden, they're coming up with solutions for problems that don't actually exist because they're not even talking to the folks they want to help. Churches, as you can imagine, get bitter about that. And they throw up their hands and go, what's the point? We just come to church on Sunday morning, feel good about ourselves and go home, and maybe connect to some other nonprofit who seems like they're doing a good job. In general, we've learned from developmental psychology that we get what we are when it comes to child rearing and child raising. When it comes to the church, it's the same for raising up disciples or justice warriors. And if we teach our children that justice work means sending a check to an organization that will show up in someone else's life, Guess what kind of children we will get? People who grow up thinking it's important to save some money, to send aside, to help someone, which is a good value. But unless they see and feel that face-to-face interaction, they're missing something big. The good news is that ACH transfers with tax benefits are not the root of Christian hospitality. Lydia shows us the way. We've lost this Lydian hospitality, that face-to-face personal touch, and the church has lost it before, and we've come back to it before, and we can do it again. This happened about 500 years ago during a big theological movement called the Reformation. Luther and Calvin started disparaging the Roman Catholic Church and the hospitality institutions that they had created that become very corrupt. And they said, hospitality needs to be rooted in the home and through civic leaders. Well, that was good. An increasingly secularized society, the people of all religions could agree on some good things to do. But the reality was that hospitality continued to be, uh, to lack a sacramentality, a church-involved aspect. Until along comes Charles Wesley, the founder of Methodism and the United Methodist Church. Paul shares uh, in her story about Wesley that he described the formation of special homes for widows 
and others who are unable to help themselves. This is in the 17s and 1800s. Wesley and the stewards of the local Methodist group found homes, furnished them comfortably, and took in as many widows and infirm and children as they could. And he wrote that in addition to those folks who lived there, four or five preachers regularly ate their meals there. Wesley said, for I myself, as well as the other preachers who are in town, diet with the poor on the same food and at the same table. And we rejoice herein as a comfortable earnest of our eating bread together in our Father's kingdom. Because this blending of poor and weak persons with influential leaders was another significant return to early Christian understandings of hospitality, understandings we see in Lydia's work. And another time, Wesley says, I've blessed God for this house ever since it began, so that it is not in vain that without any design of so doing, we have copied another of the institutions of the apostolic age. I can now say to all the world, come and see how these Christians love one another. Wesley insisted on close, face-to-face -face relations among different kinds of people, another return to much earlier practices, creating a distinctive space in which participants transcended some of their social differences. I wonder what that would look like today. I have no doubt that we have a passion for helping others, and we do in some incredible ways for this church where justice is our passion. But our whole world, the whole world of outsourcing and throwing off activities to other organizations, we've lost a lot of that face-to-faceness. Some of it can begun, can begin and to begin to be practiced here. You heard about the Tables for Eight, which is an exciting opportunity for us to sign up to break bread together because we know from so much research that the people you care about are the people you eat with. The people you care about are the people you eat with. Point blank. So how can we be eating with those who we say we care about? It can be practiced just through people here in the church, just through other people in the pew. You say, hey, do you want to have a meal? Do you want to sign up for tables for eight? It can be practiced by joining this Bible study group. We have a mom's Bible group. We have a men's group. We have a Wednesday afternoon group. We have the Sunday opportunities. There are incredible ways for us to connect with one another because we know if we are not being hospitable to one another in this place, we're not going to be very good at doing it outside these walls. But I continue to think more and more about our community, about Chevy Chase. This is one of the wealthiest, one of the most resource-rich communities in the United States of America and the world. I'm excited that we have a Ward 3 homeless shelter coming in down the street in Wisconsin Avenue, and I wonder what it's going to look like for us to show up in the lives of those who are in transition from homelessness to permanent housing. I wonder what it would be like for us to show up with Arturo. You can go to him and make the Woodworths make you a meal, but even better would be to invite him to your house to have an asylum seeker sit with you. Even if you can't speak Spanish, just to sit there, 99% of justice is showing up. 
The Washington Interfaith Network creates these dinners for people of different faiths to come together so you can actually hear what are the problems and questions that people are asking in different wards of the city. And I wonder what it would look like to actually create more opportunities for people to live in Chevy Chase. Affordable housing, looking what's available, city lots, and looking around this community and saying, if this is such a great place that we all want to live there, how can we help others to do the same? The La Brie Fellowship, the Annunciation House, Larch, the Catholic Worker, Good Works, Inc., Jubilee Partners of World, Northeast Georgia, all these organizations began because they saw something missing in our culture. They knew that if they weren't looking at Jesus face into face, they weren't practicing Christian hospitality. Looking at your faces, even if you're sleeping. I see so many of you who've practiced such incredible hospitality to me, to the people I love, to friends, to family, to the poor, to refugees, and I am so incredibly grateful to be a part of you all in this community. And I wonder how through that love that we share, through that image of Christ we have seen in one another, how can our arms open even wider as we see the arms of our Savior saying, welcome, come home, because in the fellowship of those who love God, this is where we belong. Thanks be to God for Lydia, and may we follow her on our path towards the cross. Amen.